This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, Luke Henrique Gomez, a reporter at The Guardian Australia, joined me in the studio to talk about his reporting on welfare, including the controversial robo-debt scheme, New Start and the people Australia has left behind. Then... American historian Deborah Lipstadt joined me on the show to talk about Holocaust denial, defending historical truth, as well as the threat of anti-Semitism today, which is covered in her new book, Anti-Semitism Here and Now. Then, finally, Dr Julie Cotter, a freelance writer and art historian, joined me to talk about her new book, Portraits Destroyed, Power, Ego and History's Vandals. It's great to have with me in the studio the wonderful Luke Henrique Gomez, who is a reporter at The Guardian Australia, and he does a whole range of reporting on um, political issues mainly. And we are going to be looking at political issues, particularly at the federal level, and we're going to be uh, taking a look at Centrelink, Social Security, and also some of the major issues relating to that at the moment in the news. And that would be around raising the rate of New Start, which is the Job Seekers Allowance, and also um, the issues around the disability support pension, as well as robo debt, that very, very well known and in the news pretty much all the time uh, scheme, which has become particularly controversial and is a subject of two parliamentary inquiries. Uh, welcome, Luke, now, and thank you for coming in. Thanks a lot for having me, Amy. It's Good great to, be to here. have you. Thank you so much for being in here on this somewhat early morning. No, no, it's a pleasure. I usually <laughs> start earlier than this. It's all right. No doubt, yeah. <laughs> when do you have to start, like, checking your emails as a journalist? Uh, seven o'clock. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. And um, just thinking about the day. Yeah. It's great. I love it. Yeah. Well, it does seem like you get to do some amazing reporting with The Guardian. What do you think, before we get into these issues, um, makes The Guardian as a a platform unique and well-placed to cover issues like these and the issues that you're reporting on a daily basis? Um, Good question. I mean, I suppose we... um we think it's really important to, um, I suppose, tell stories that perhaps haven't gotten coverage uh, elsewhere. So, you know, we've only been in Australia for five or so years. And, um, yeah, I think there was a gap um, in the market. And, you know, hate to talk about media and journalism as a commodity, but in some ways it, it's, it is. And, um, and so, yeah, I think certainly from my perspective, the round I've got, which is called Welfare and Inequality, um, my job is to tell the stories of people who are let down by, um, you know, government policies and systems and um, the way society is, uh, you know, o- organised essentially, right? Um, mm. We try to do that by telling the stories of people, but the the stats and the policies uh, as well. Um, and I think we do that in basically in the way we cover most issues, in environment, asylum seekers, um, uh, issues I suspect might be of interest to Triple R listeners. Um, yeah, it's a real big focus for us, for sure. Yeah, I've got to say, 
as a reader of The Guardian a lot. Um, <laughs> and someone who, you know, has a radio show about many political issues, I definitely utilise the reporting you do around the environment a lot, um, as well as welfare and uh, many others. But, yeah, I think that having reporters focused on core topics seems to be something that is slowly leaving the media in other kind of platforms and a kind of specialization a topic specialization is quite rare now in journalism yeah for sure i mean it's um we are very lucky um we are given time to really dig into um policy areas and you're right i think there are um just because of the way that the media landscape has changed and, um, you know, so many experienced reporters have, have, have left newsrooms. Um, there are a lot of people who are generalists which are, who are great and um, they do fantastic work, but it is important to have people focused on particular areas um, because that's when you can really dig into to what's happening and, and, and get something new and fresh, I think. Absolutely. And um, it reminds me of one of the series you've got on The Guardian called Life on the Breadline, which I think is fantastic. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. We love it. It's giving a voice to people who don't have a voice. And some of the personal stories they have, I had, you know, I would have had no clue about. And, um, you know, your eyes are quite opened to some of the really shocking experiences people have really barely surviving on payments, welfare payments and, you know, the types of um, obligations that are put on them, placed on them, really are not um, (laughs) enabling them to do whatever it is they need to do in their lives, whether it's looking for a job or working or um, just trying to be well Mm. or as well as they possibly can if they're disabled or chronically ill. Mm. Um, Yeah, it's quite shocking, isn't it? It is, and I think the reason why that series was so successful and we've talked about it a bit, I think, is because it was a a rare opportunity for people who are um, directly involved with with the welfare system to talk about it themselves and... Um, they were empowered to talk about their experiences without, um, uh, I guess, essentially somebody else coming in sort of determining what was important and what's not important and what um, they should, um, what the public should know about their situation and what they shouldn't, Mm -hmm. right? Because, um, you know, when I write a story, the nature of journalism is that I'm making decisions about what I think is important to the reader. And in this case, it's a chance for really... um, really clever um, um, people who are in a tough spot to tell people about their lives. And I think it's, yeah, I think in terms of the welfare stuff we've done, it was some of the most powerful because it's just people saying, this is what my life looks like. This is how I'm impacted by um, the welfare system. Um, And uh, I think, yeah, um, for readers... It was a, a new perspective on, on something um, that pr- they probably hadn't really read much like before. Yeah. Well, that, that's a good point, really, that there's a kind of narrative that's constructed intentionally or unintentionally in a lot of um, you know media news stories. And one that really made the news recently was around um, the terms of doll bludges mm-hmm. and the data that the government released, which kind of seemed somewhat intentional from my perspective, mm-hmm. around the um, people who are on Newstart who've had payments suspended. And, um, you know, it was kind of staggering initially but then when you think about it so many people have their payments suspended through no fault of their own often because of administrative error mm-hmm. well that's right i mean um there are 
if you speak to anybody who's been on Newstart or engaged with the Job Active system, which is the sort of flagship program for people who are looking for for job and a job, and it's a, you know, if you put on Newstart, you go and see essentially a private outsourced um, job agency who are paid by the government to try and get you into work. Um, they'll tell you that they got their payment suspended probably at least once because they didn't turn up to an appointment that they were never notified about or mm. that the appointment was um, scheduled uh, before they actually received notification of it or also because, you know, people have really complex lives and, um, you know, if you uh, also have caring responsibilities, um, if you are just having a tough time of it... Um, you might miss an appointment. And so the way the system um, works, now it's quite automated. If you don't go to the what's called your mutual obligation to go to an appointment or that sort of thing, you'll um, the job, um, the consultant is um, obliged to put that in the system and then your payment will be suspended until you re-engage, which is like, you know, until you go back to another meeting or call them up or that sort of thing. Mm. So... That's how people miss out on their payments. And um, uh, when I talk to people who work as employment consultants, they say um, the changes that the government made some changes to this, which came in last year, and and it took the ability of the consultants to have some discretion. Um, And so to go back to what you were talking about before in terms of the... um, the amount of suspensions that people get. The the reason why it's so high is because it's mostly automated Mm. and there's not um, the ability for the consultant to intervene. Then they do afterwards, after the payment's suspended, um, when they're contacted by the person, they're they're able to make a judgment about whether or not um, that payment suspension was legitimate or not. And so the way the system works is a bit complicated and um, um, technocratic here, but... Um, they'll then give you a demerit point. That's what they call it. If you don't, um, if you were found to have missed your appointment or whatever, whatever, without um, having a legitimate reason. Um, but um, I, and I, you'll have to uh, forgive me. I don't remember the exact stats, but yeah, I think it was about one in five of the suspensions that the government was talking about were um, wrongly uh, implemented. Essentially, and that's um, hundreds of thousands of people who. Um, had their payments cut, mm. um, probably weren't without money, um, and in the end it was through no fault of their own. Yeah, and it has real repercussions. Yeah, well, I mean, if you... Um, so I talk to people often who will have their welfare payments um, sort of directed to pay their bills automatically or might be their rent or um, things like that, um, and, you know, you end up with overdraw fees and a whole range of other things. If you're living... Um, week to week or fortnight to fortnight, one missed payment just knocks you back yeah. and it takes a while to, to catch up. Yeah. Yeah, it's – um, it's yeah, people may not really truly understand. That's why I think um, they should look at your reporting but also the Life on the Breadline series to get some of those personal experiences of what we're really talking about here because mm. there's many examples of this. Um, let's talk – First up, seeing as we're on Newstart about mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. and um, the fact that it's from successive governments 
the policies evolved, uh, but certainly it seems to be the, the case that it was initially conceived as a job seeker's allowance. It's to, you know, should you become uh, made redundant or should you um, be fired or should you be underemployed or maybe even um, studying as a mature age student who's ineligible for youth allowance. There's a whole range of situations you might find yourself in uh, where New Start is the main or only payment um, that you are eligible for. Um, it seems like that has become a really, um, well, first of all, inadequate payment in terms of the amount, and that's made the news uh, very hmm. constantly, but yes. also it certainly has reached a fever pitch, I think, in the recent months. But also what you've highlighted and others, and it's come up in Senate estimates and a range of other forums, is the fact that it is really not uh, job seekers necessarily who are only on New Start, actually a huge proportion of them are people who are chronically unwell, who are perhaps have a disability but are not eligible for the DSP, or maybe they are eligible but they've been assessed as being ineligible. Mm-hmm. There are so many moments or times where people have appealed and then been found to be eligible. Yeah. So um, in, in that sense, where like, I mean, there are so many Labor and Liberal governments who've been involved in this kind of slowly tightening welfare system and the New Start allowance and the DSP, disability support pension, kind of tightening and changing in terms of criteria. Um, what's your understanding of how, like where we're at now in terms of the people who are relying on New Start and the types of circumstances they find themselves in? Um, I think um, I'll, I'll answer that directly, but uh, the, I guess the first point to be made is that um, I had a, I wrote a story earlier in the year which basically pointed out that um, you know we're at basically at a record level of um, people who are on New Start rather than the disability support pension who um, uh, have what's called partial capacity to work and that's people who are um, sick or have a disability but haven't been granted the disability support pension and the reason for that is because um, the Gillard government made a whole range of changes in 2012 um, to what, what are called the impairment tables which are what people are judged by in order to get onto the DSP and then um, the Abbott government made some changes as well to the DSP which just has made it harder to get on to it. Um, in terms of the um, situations that people are in um, I mean, I had a story um, earlier, um, I think it was last month, about a lady I interviewed, um, uh, Trish, who uh, was placed on Newstart after her um, husband had died. She'd not, she'd um, always worked with her um, at home as um, a mother. Um, she hadn't worked and she has a range of debilitating illnesses. She's... Um, She's got. Um, she was judged to have severe depression. She can't walk past her letterbox. She's got a um, without a mobility scooter. She needs that to get around. She's really having it. She was really having a tough time, and she was put on New Start and rejected for the disability support pension. And then she uh, appealed that, and she was rejected again. Um, she's uh, now. When I interviewed her, she was sixty four. So she's just very close to being um, eligible for the age pension, but until she was able to appeal to um, the uh, AAT, which is you know, the tribunal which is able to overturn decisions made by Centrelink, um, and that was about a year's process, she was um, on Newstart um, and considered somebody that should be looking for work. Now, I don't think anyone can um, 
would reasonably say that somebody who is 64 and has a range of illnesses and, um, you know, that what chance has Trish got of getting a job and being able to do it? She didn't have any chance. Mm. Um, and she's one of, you know, that two, that cohort of about 200,000 people um, and that is going to grow because of the way that the policies um, exist at the moment. Um, those are the sorts of situations that people are in. Um, uh, that's probably at the extreme end, but um, there would be people, and I've been emailed by people like Trish already who are like, oh, I can relate to that. Mm. Yeah, and um, we were talking off air about a chart from yesterday that was mm. on Twitter, which is pretty revealing around um, the disability support pension and the slow kind of tightening of that and people becoming less and less able to be eligible for that. And then, then the um, new start partial capacity to work people, you know, slowly, slowly increasing. And it's quite a symmetrical chart almost yeah. and the steps down and then the steps up on the other side. Yeah. I mean, if it was a line graph, it's just to an X basically yeah. to, if you were to imagine it. Um, and, uh, as I said, that's only going to get worse. Um, and the reason ultimately is because, um, the disability support pension is, you know, at the moment it's about the, um, spending on that is the second, it's the second, um, most, shall we say expensive, for the, in the government's terms, um, welfare payment behind the age pension. Um, and so governments have basically said, oh, we need to, to do something about this. Um, and there are about 750,000 people, I think, on the DSP at the moment. Mm. Um, and so they've just tightened it and tightened it and tightened it. Um, and that's all well and good. But, um, you know, for, for people who are unable to get onto uh, to the DSP... Um, it has horrific consequences f- for their lives. You know, <laughs> the other thing as well is yeah. that if you're on, uh, if you should be on the DSP, you're going to have a whole range of medical costs as well. Um, and you know, the difference. You know, New South's about two hundred and seventy-seven dollars a week. Um, the DSP is four hundred, about four hundred and fifty dollars a week. Um, yeah. If you're relying on government payments to get by. It's a big difference. Mm. And, I mean, medications cost a huge amount. Seeing a doctor, specialist, Mm. multiple doctors and specialists having to go to hospitals, maybe, yeah, clearly most people, if not all, wouldn't be able to afford any kind of private health insurance because it's so expensive. Um, You know, you're reliant upon the public health system, which is, you know, straining, to say the least. Um, It's interesting. I'm looking back at um, some of your reporting and uh, particularly around the partial capacity to work on Newstart. It reminds me of the types of obligations that even people who are unwell and are on Newstart have. Mm. I mean, you need a medical certificate to be exempt from having to look for work. Um, so and that that puts a huge stress on people who need to constantly prove that they're still very unwell and are unable to do the requisite amount to kind of go over the threshold and be made to look for work. Mm. The people who are partially apparently able to work, yeah. you know, the types of obligations they might have to still engage with the system whilst being unwell is substantial. Yeah, and, and I think the other point that should really be made there is that um, if you... Uh, are getting these medical exemptions because you are unfit to and judged as unfit to be able to look for work and meet those mutual obligations. 
that's a reprieve for people, sure. Um, mm. But firstly, they're on New Start, which is lower than the DSP. And in order to get onto the DSP, unless you um, have you know severe disabilities and are able to meet um, the criteria, um, essentially, you know, without going too much into it, in one go, mm. if you have maybe a range of different um, uh, illnesses or disabilities which um, aren't in what like severe, but cumulatively have an effect on your ability to look for work um you need to do um what's called a program of support where where you spend i think it's about 12 months um in this sort of specialized program to see whether or not you could look for work and you unless you do that 12 months you can't get onto the dsp if you're getting medical exemptions every um few weeks that's only going to push out further your ability to get those 12 months under your belt before you can get onto the payments. So mm. people are left with the option of, oh, well, I'm clearly unfit to do these obligations, but should I try and do it anyway because I know that I need to get onto the DSP or do I sort of resign myself to a life in poverty um, because I need to make sure that I don't do these obligations? Yeah. It's really become so depersonalised, hasn't it, this kind of bureaucratic machinations and almost arbitrary requirements yeah and that's the point yeah that's the point of it and it's so complicated um to apply is really difficult i mean it's my job to understand this stuff Mm. and it's hard to get your head around it let alone if you are um you know maybe you've got cancer maybe you've got a severe uh, you're having serious mental health issues to apply um, and the other point, I guess, that should be made is that the services that support people, advocacy services, are strained as well. I was at a disability conference yesterday where um, the advocacy groups were saying that um, they're at the point where they're not taking on new um, people onto their caseloads. Um, they're just having to deal with the caseloads that they have at the moment because they just don't have enough money to do it. Mm. Um, and if you don't have the ability to get the help, you really are going to struggle to get on. Yes, exactly. Um, I want to pick up on uh, some other elements of the DSP before we head on to RoboDebt. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the interesting developments under the Turnbull government uh, was the fact that they decided they would review people who were on the disability support pension to see if they were truly eligible. And it put a huge amount of pressure and stress on people who had already been approved for this payment and you write in um, your reporting that uh, by October 2018 um, that policy was abandoned but the Senate estimates hearing showed that just two percent of cases um, the that 555 out of roughly 28,000 reviews um, were ineligible under current rules so it's Mm. just such a teeny tiny proportion yeah it was a waste of money yeah Um, and it's uh it's sort of what happens when, um, I mean, regardless of what you think of the sort of the the morality of is sort of putting people through this um, ordeal, um, they didn't design the policy properly, mm. and people went through this horrific process, and the budget was not helped by it at all. Um, I mean, yeah, in terms, and that story really didn't get as much. Um, uh, cut through as it perhaps should have. It was, you know, revealed during 
um, a set an estimates hearing. I remember um, I was, you know, watching along and me and Rick Morton, formerly of The Australian, wrote about it and he'd, Rick had done some great work on it before. Um, and that was it really. Because like the government had decided to put people through this. I mean, I guess we're going to talk about robo debt. Yes. Perhaps it's a, it, great there segue. Are, there are similarities, right? Yeah. yeah. But it's just you've got to wonder what um, what the thinking was because it, it on all the metrics it, it didn't work. Yeah. Yeah, I'm speaking with Luke Henrique uh, Gomez from The Guardian and he's a reporter on the welfare and inequality round and we are talking about um, inequality and social security system and um, I did say we'll get to robo-debt so let's do that and it reminds me, talking about inefficiency and you know unnecessary reviews, mm. uh, the robo-debt system has been criticised widely by a range of people, not just um, people in the community sector but also even politicians at Senate Estimates hearings who have highlighted the fact that the cost of implementing robo-debt um, has almost outweighed the n- amount of money that has been um, taken back, mm. whether rightly or wrongly, incorrectly or not, from people who are apparently overpaid using a highly incorrect algorithm. Um, what are, I mean... There are two reviews currently going on um, in Parliament, and it you know we've seen this issue play out over a number of years now. It's kind of shocking to think that we're still talking about it, given how flawed it's been. How like where did we start in robo debt in terms of how it was first conceived, and how has it changed to now? Whether you know whether that's only a small tweak or mm. or not. Um, well, I mean, to, so in um, in twenty sixteen, there started to be this. Um, new story that emerged where people were noticing that or people were receiving these letters um, and um, essentially the letters were demands for money that they were said to owe the government and the only way that they could um, it would challenge it was to send in um, pay slips um, and so this is money that they're alleged to be overpaid in terms of their welfare payments dating back as many as seven years, right? So I don't know about you, Amy, but I I, I probably don't have my pay slips from when I worked at McDonald's in Brandon Park um, at home. Um, those are difficult to get. Mm. Um, and there was a huge uproar. Um, there was a Senate inquiry um, and the government did make some small changes to, to the program, but... Essentially, at first, what they did was they thought, well, you know, if we we can use this algorithm to see whether or not people might owe money, whether or not they might have been overpaid, and then what we'll do is we'll send them a letter saying this is how much you owe. Um, and what happened was a lot of people just went, oh, I guess I'll pay it, right? Mm. And... Um, and that caused a great amount of um, a great amount of furor in the community because clearly not everybody who's received a robot debt owes it, and we can come to that in a minute. Yes, what they've, the government's done now is they've introduced more, I guess, what they would call a sort of human uh, in, involvement in the process. So it, it, it's not true to say that um, it's an entirely automated process now. There are people making decisions um, in mostly labour hire staff. Uh, making decisions um, about um, when, how to engage with customers and where money might or might not be owed. And so the, the algorithm essentially, you know, looks at the money that you uh, uh, reported to Centrelink 
um, which is a fortnightly reporting system. And then you, the, the most common thing is to to use your sort of tax return that you reported by the ATO. And, mm. and which is an annualised amount. Yeah, it doesn't seem like it would make much sense, right? You no. think it, it, there's a possibility it might be wrong. Yes, certainly if you're part-time or casual, have multiple jobs. Only worked in part of the year. Yep. Yeah, so, but the way that... Um, the the point is, well, this in, forces people to engage with the process. And if you the, the, gov- the way the government would put it is, we have an obligation if we suspect that you owe money that you were overpaid to recoup that money, or you have a mutual obligation to prove that you don't have it. Now, in every other um, you know aspect of debt recovery, mm. the onus is on the person who believes a debt is owed to prove the debt first. Um, and that's what legal experts have said, and that is um, what will be the subject of the court case that will be heard later in the year. Yeah, and there was a previous court case that was really like dropped because the government decided not to pursue the debt of the person who was really essentially a test case. Yeah, so so what they've done, so Victoria Legal Aid um, brought a test, what they've described as a test case to mm. the federal court, um, and they're challenging the... Um, I guess the legality of the the method that is used to um, calculate and then retrieve the money that is alleged to be owed. What the Department of Human Services did is once that case got to court, they waived the debt, which Madeline Masterson, the Melbourne nurse who took this case on, um, was said to have owed. And then the department said, oh, well, given that there's no longer a debt, the case doesn't need to um, be pursued anymore. There's no... um, there's no utility, to use the legal term, anymore in this case, right? Uh, w- without me passing judgment on that, other people have said that that is mighty convenient, right? So what Legal Aid have done is they've brought a second case um, and they've been much more specific in court that they're challenging the legality of the process and that the debt itself is sort of not relevant to mm-hmm. whether or not this case should be heard. Um, and... Um, we're going to we're going to find out whether or not um, the judge agrees later in the year, I suppose. Yeah, it's going to be very important to watch that case because it has huge implications, obviously, for many Australians. Yeah. Um, let's uh, also mention the. I was really surprised at one of this or many of the stats in your recent article about robo debt, but one that was quite um, shocking was that uh, the Department of Human Services is on track to issue in excess of two hundred thousand debts. In 2018-19, mm. um, meanwhile, 173,000 have been referred to an external debt collector, and that is like it's mind, like just staggering. Like, yeah. I cannot believe that. <laughs> but also, it made me think. I mean, anyone who's being pursued in that circumstance, it's kind of stressful enough that you're, un, you know, being told to prove something that may not be able to be proved, even if you're not in the wrong. Mm. But also, then you might um, have it referred to a debt collector, and the stress that that can put on people. Absolutely, uh, and I think a few points to make. Firstly, um, when we're talking about people who are alleged to owe money um, that was paid to them in welfare, so by definition, some of the people we're talking about are some of the most vulnerable people in the community. Um, for them, uh, receiving a letter from Centrelink saying they, they owe money is going to be a stressful process. Whatever you think of um, the way um, uh, the, with people's uh, dealings with Centrelink, and I think it's important to note that you know the staff who work there are 
merely doing their job. Some mm. do it better than others, like any um, profession, but they're just carrying out the policies of, of the whichever government. Of government. The day. Mm. But debt collectors do not operate in the same way that Centrelink do, right? Anybody that's had a dealing with um, with a debt collector will tell you that. And it's incredibly scary to to suddenly be pursued for this money that you have no idea how you owe it. And um, uh, and so that's, again, um, that's how they get the money because people will just go, oh, yeah. n- now I've got this this person from whatever company it is pounding me. I'm just going to pay it whether or not I owe it or not. Maybe I didn't even get the letter that was sent to me in the first place and so that's why it's ended up in the hands of the debt collector. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the other element that's really quite new and that you've reported, um, there were documents that I'm gathering might have been leaked or somehow stumbled upon <laughs> and uh, by journalists, including you, who um, saw that there is a proposal um, potentially that may be brought before Cabinet around expanding the program to so-called highly sensitive groups, mm. um, people who are older Australians, people who are um, people with a disability and um, maybe even including people who are homeless um, mm. as part of this scheme. Mm. Where, what, what did that um, process or the documents reveal to you essentially in terms of where the government's mind is at and why they would seek to expand the program? What the documents show, um, which, yeah, as you say, were um, uh, leaked to me, is that um, the government has um, projections for how much money they're going to make out of this program. And you have to, I guess, consider that the, the justification for this program, which has caused the, the government a whole lot of political um, pain, essentially, it's really unpopular, mm. is two things. One, well, this money is, uh, is owed and therefore it's the you know it's the right thing to do we need to recoup it whatever you think of that <laughs> and the second point is this is money that the budget needs we can't just allow this money to you know sit in the hands of people who were overpaid right what the documents show is that if the government continues with the program the way it currently exists they're not going to get close to meeting those budget projections they're going to miss them by about 500 million dollars now um that's because after the um, furor that we talked about in about 2016, 2017, they were much more selective about who they decided to pursue. Um, and what the documents show is that there's a proposal which is being pushed by the department, um, and we don't know where the minister stands on it, um, to expand the program to those groups who had been left out, as you mentioned before, to make the money that they said they were going to make in the first place, right? Um, I don't want to um, frame the discussion in terms of it being vital that they meet those budget projections. Community groups would say, well, maybe you should just drop the program altogether, altogether, Mm. right? Um, But on the premise that they've put it forward to the Australian public, um, what the documents show is that it's not even doing what it was designed to do. Yeah. Luke, before we finish up, I want to ask you, given mm. that you cover this round so closely and you've seen how things change over time, it's quite a 
unique position to be in. Um, in terms of New Start and the campaign that's been going on by not just community groups but the business sector, mm. many people um, in, in Australia, mm. where do you think we're at now in terms of that rising call for the increase to New Start, uh, given that Labor had not made a really clear-cut commi- um, commitment at the last election to raise it just to review it, mm. and the government has very clearly stated they have no intention of reviewing it? Mm. Um, good question. Uh, hard to say. I think you're right to point out that um, the, la- the the decision of um, you know the Labor opposition now to really campaign makes a really big difference, um, and they I think rightfully were criticised for not taking a stronger position on it before the election. But leaving that aside, that is going to put a lot more pressure on the, um, the government. And I was amused. Um, before Labor had a position on this, but after the election, you know, the Shadow Treasurer Jim Chalmers was saying, he was asked at the press club about New Start, and he sort of said, well, you know, um, it's going to be up to um, people to campaign uh, to convince the government, essentially saying it's not our job, right? Mm. Um, you know, there are Shadow Cabinet and caucus processes that need to, uh, you know, sort of pass by, and they did, and Labor took a strong position to now campaign to increase New Start and look at the difference that it's made in terms of the coverage that the issue gets. The government gets questions on it in new, in, um, in question time. Ministers go on TV and they have to explain quite often why is this payment adequate. So I think there is a case, there is hope that it will be increased. One thing you should be, I guess, people who are following this closely and support an increase should be careful of is that don't be surprised if there's some sort of not halfway measure but a kind of very specific increase so not an across the board increase but something like oh we'll increase it for people over 55 something like that and we've already seen those ideas floated mm. in the media um we've seen uh, people you know like Barnaby Joyce saying oh well maybe we should increase it in the regions now uh, the, the reality is that um if you're 30 or 40 um, $40 a day is not enough to live on either. And so, um, but I would not be surprised if that is um, the outcome, at least in the next few years. Um, but the pressure will make a big difference, I think. Mm, that's really interesting. Luke, it's been such a privilege to have you in with your insights. And um, I also want to thank you for the work that you're doing because journalism is really important and uh, you're certainly really at the front line of this um, area of journalism. So I really appreciate your time today. Thanks for having me on, Amy, and uh, appreciate the opportunity to talk about these issues. It's been a pleasure of mine. I've been speaking with Luke Henrique Gomez, who is a reporter at The Guardian Australia. He does uh, amazing work, as his colleagues do, of course, at The Guardian on uh, welfare and inequality. And he's been reporting, as I said, on New Start, the disability support pension, robo-debt, and many other issues we haven't even got to, like parents next so i um, hope you can check it out and uh, luke is on twitter at luke h gomez if you would like to um, look him up there this is a podcast from triple r an independent media organization in melbourne australia to find out more about triple r or to explore many more shows podcasts articles videos and interviews head to the triple r website at rrr.org.au 
You are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM with Amy Mullins. And I'm delighted now to have with me in the studio Professor Deborah Lipstadt, and she is um, the Dorot Professor of Modern Jewish History and Holocaust Studies at Emory University in America. And she's here in Melbourne for a number of events. Um, Two at the Melbourne Writers' Festival and one is tonight. Uh, Deborah is delivering the John Button oration in the face of hatred. And Deborah has also written a number of books, including uh, her latest book, Anti-Semitism, Here and Now. And she's written other books around uh, the Eichmann trial, denying the Holocaust, um, and also looking at America's uh, relationship to the Holocaust uh, more recently. So I'm very pleased now to have have Deborah with me and welcome. Thank you, Amy. It's a pleasure being here. It's so fantastic to have the opportunity to pick your brain, uh, which is immense. (laughs) And it's great to see the kind of topics that have been so diverse, I guess, in your scholarly career as a historian. Well, I've been very lucky and able to choose my topics. But what's interesting and sort of amusing almost is that one of the topics, Holocaust denial, that has become such a major uh, part of my work and my life, uh, really started as a diversion. Uh, Two senior historians said, do you know about this Holocaust denial? I I laughed. I said, oh, it's crazy. No one would believe it. Mm. And they took it seriously and I respected them. So I said, I'll spend a couple of years writing, looking at it, you know, two, three years, and then I'll move on back to other things. And of course, the book precipitated a lawsuit brought against me by David Irving, and um, then a long drawn out legal battle, et cetera. So, uh, but I've been lucky uh, in the in terms of the academic world being able to research what interests me. Yeah, and I mean, let's give you give the listeners some background in such such an important period of um, history, which is now. Um, even a movie called Denial, which I just recently saw. And uh, for people listening, it's on SBS On Demand, so they can watch it after this interview or at their leisure. Um, but it was really fascinating to see the behind the scenes of what happened in that legal right. trial and the fact that, as you've said in um, the book that you wrote about it, there's such a difference between the American legal system and the British legal system mm. and the burden of um, proof, I guess, is on you, the defense. That's right. That's entirely correct. Uh, in America, if I if I, I say you libeled me, uh, I have to prove that you libeled me. In Britain, and I assume it's similar here in Australia, um, if I say you libeled me, you as the author of the words, as the speaker of the words, in cases of slander, have to prove the truth of what you said. So when David Irving sued me for libel for calling him a Holocaust denier, which I always thought he was very proud of being, um, he waited till the book or uh, came out in England and sued me in the British courts. Therefore, uh, because he knew clearly that if I didn't fight, which a lot of people told me not to fight, colleagues, senior historians said, oh, don't waste your time. Everybody knows he's a liar. Everybody knows he makes things up. Mm. He would have won by default. 
If he had won by default, he could then say, my, David Irving's, uh, I'm not a Holocaust denier. The court found Deborah Lipstadt libeled me. Therefore, my version of the Holocaust is a genuine version. And that version is uh, there was no plan to kill the Jews. Hitler was the best friend the Jews had in Germany. There were no gas chambers. The Jews have made this all up, et cetera, et cetera. So, mm. uh, I mean, in, the, in his judgment, the judge found David Irving to be not just deni- a denier and a falsifier of history, but a neo-Nazi polemicist and a racist. So, yeah, it was a pretty good outcome. It and a very important outcome, given that really the veracity of the Holocaust was being questioned and right. put on trial. Well, what we did is we followed his footnotes back to the sources. Uh, and we had, in fact, a guest who was on your show a few months ago, Christopher Browning, was one of our witnesses, Richard Evans, Robert Jan von Pelt. And what they did, each in the areas of specialization, followed David Irving's comments and claims back to the sources. So he would say, I have a document which proves X, Y, Z. They'd go and find that original document, look at it. And in virtually all the cases they examined it, they would find a change, a falsification of the record, a change in a date, putting someone at a meeting who wasn't there. Uh, so what we did is, and this, may, this is a distinction with the difference. We didn't really mm-hmm. prove what happened. But we proved that when the deniers claim it wasn't a Holocaust and it wasn't a genocide and the Jews have made it up, that they have no evidence. They have no proof. They have no narrative. What they have is a large voice and a lot of hate. And in essence, Holocaust denial, we also demonstrated to the court, is a form of anti-Semitism that is very close to racism. Yeah, it's a really dangerous form of um, discrimination that you highlight in this new book. And um, I want to focus on the Holocaust denial element um, for a little bit longer and then we'll head into anti-Semitism here and now. Um, What was shocking for me when I was doing my research for this interview was looking up David Irving and his comments, but also looking at Uh, other historians early on in um, Irving's career, even in the 1990s, who were um, thinking that although there were some flaws in his books and, you know, some of the things he said were, you know, pushing the truth or maybe he didn't say things explicitly enough, but a lot of people in his own field uh, gave him a certain level of respect and... Leeway. Yeah, and put him up on a pedestal in some regards because of his knowledge of the German language and his, I guess, commitment to the research in this field. Right. Uh, what they, what they engaged in what I call the yes, but syndrome. Yes, we know there was a Holocaust, but maybe there's something to what he's saying. Yes, there was a Holocaust, but maybe it wasn't six million. Yes, there was a Holocaust. Maybe there wasn't a gas chamber or something like that. And they just took him on faith, mm. uh, even though they, he had been shown before to have lied and made things up or have, have not been exactly explicit about the truth. Um, and uh, they, they gave him a great deal of leeway. Uh, again, because he had uh, he has tremendous knowledge of German, the German language, and he seemed to have documents that others didn't have, some of which we now may have been false and some of which were given to him by former Nazis and things like that. Mm. Um, so that's why I called him in my book, the book that I wrote which precipitated the lawsuit, The Most Dangerous of Deniers, because he didn't come across as a right-wing crazy. He didn't come across as some extremist sitting in a pub, you know, spouting, I love Hitler and mm. and let's drink to Hitler and there was no Holocaust. But he came across as a 
a respectable figure. And part of what I write, I know we're going to talk about the book in a minute, yeah. but but the contemporary phenomenon that we're seeing, particularly on the right, um, but not just on the right, but certainly the way it presents on the right, if you look at the video of the marchers in Charlottesville, if your listeners just put in Charlottesville, August, what was it, uh, I think 17, August 16, um, uh, and... Uh, 17. And um, they're marching through the town with the tiki torches, chanting Jews will not replace us and blood and soil, which was a Nazi slogan, Jews are not of our blood or of the soil, Mm. of our soil. Um, Look at what they're wearing. They look like they came out of not Exactly, Brooks Brothers, but TJ Maxx, you know, uh, and they're all dressed in nice shirts and slacks, and their faces are are riveted with hate. Yeah. Um, but but they were told not to wear you know white power t shirts, not to white wear anti semitic shirts. They were to present themselves as respectable figures. That's exactly what deny what the the David Irving cohort of deniers did. Mm-hmm. They didn't want to be called deniers. They want to be called revisionists. We're just revising mistakes in history. We're just neutral observers. But when you scratch a millimeter beneath the surface, they're not neutral. They're making up. They're lying. They're uh, engaging in anti-Semitism and often in racism as well. Mm. Um, It reminds me of a quote from Christopher Hitchens. Um, He made this in the mid-1990s, I believe. He said, he's not just a fascist historian, he's also a very important historian of fascism. That's right. That's right. No, but Christopher uh, Hitchens, uh, the late Christopher Hitchens, was, you know, sort of intrigued by who is this guy. Mm. And then he spent time with him and was just appalled. Yeah. Just appalled. And and that kind of transition between – and also there was a transition in Irving's work from initially um, accepting that the Holocaust happened, at least implicitly, in mm-hmm. his first book right. and then revising that And then in re- eliminating book. it. When, he, when his star began to go down, when historians began to say, wait, this man is, is pushing the boundaries of truth, not mm-hmm. opinion, but truth and fact um, – he suddenly reinvented himself or came out as whatever the term would be as a denier, showed up at a trial to be an expert witness in Canada of a, a Holocaust denier, a, a, a really quite re- revolting now, no longer with us man. Um, and he was given a piece of paper and he took one look at it, a, a summary of a study, and he said, oh, I don't believe now that there were gas chambers. I mean, just overnight, you know. And it became where he would say whatever was outrageous. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there were people who were willing to believe him. And then when he sued me after my book came out, because I called him the most dangerous of deniers, a Holocaust denier, my guess is, because others had written even worse about him, many people had written worse about him, that he thought I was, in British terms, from the other side of the pond. I was a woman. Uh, I wouldn't fight back. It was too far. It was too complicated. I would just say, okay, I'll pay you. I'll settle. He offered mm. to settle with me for 500 pounds right before the trial to a charity of his choice. That was, again, a, a no-starter. Um, but uh, I knew that if if I let him if I, if I didn't fight and he won, even though I would say to people, you know he's a liar, and they would say, of course, he would gain so much mileage. And, mm. and damage would be done on a intellectual level to history, real damage to history, and on a personal level to survivors, children of survivors, people who care about the truth. 
Yeah, it does have real implications today in the way that we talk about facts, what is agreed upon, and then what historians might differ in terms of the interpretation. Right. Well, it's not just historians. Look, think about, and Mm. I know we don't want to get into this because we could spend the whole time, the (laughs) anti-vax movement which is based on no facts. It's based on a study which was published by Lancet based on, I think, 12 cases that Lancet then withdrew that is full of mistakes and egregious misstatements of fact and changes and all sorts of things where the doctors whose cases are supposedly being cited when they're shown the results say, that's not how my case went down. Uh, But there's still people who adhere to it and causing great damage, causing great uh, harm to children who who have been vaccinated, who have not yet been vaccinated, to people who are on chemotherapy, who who are susceptible, and just to the population in general. We have a measles epidemic in many parts of the world. Exactly. That's so true. It's become a major issue in New Zealand recently. But it's the same kind of thing. It's uh, Mm. lying about the facts but dressing them up in a scientific uh, facade – you know, sheep in wolf's clothing, a wolf in sheep's clothing, rather. Mm. Uh, And so then people say, oh, well, he looks reasonable. He must, but it's not. Climate change, the same thing. Exactly. Um, Before we get into anti-Semitism, one last thing around the word Holocaust and Mm -hmm. I guess the definition. Mm -hmm. Um, There was obviously a lot that came out of uh, the Nuremberg trials and the UN um, and and the definition of genocide. But genocide um, is still different from what a lot of people consider to be the Holocaust. Genocide, the Holocaust is a subset of Mm. genocide in general. Uh, The word genocide created by Raphael Lemkin, uh, a Jew. Jewish, a, a Jew from um, Poland, an area of Eastern Europe that was often in Poland. Um, and he was really talking in the main when he first began to write about it, but the Armenian genocide by the Turks, something which has not been recognized and not been acknowledged by the Turks and is a source of great pain, rightfully so, to the Armenian community. Mm. Um, but the Holocaust has certain unique elements. It has similar elements to genocide, and as every event has unique elements. And the uniqueness of the Holocaust is that, A, it was state-sponsored, and as was, of course, the Armenian genocide and other genocides, but it was an attempt not just to destroy the Jews living in Germany, not just to d- destroy the Jews whom you had conquered, but to go from one end of Europe to the other. In fact, in their plans and their decisions, how to how to carry this out from the Vansay conference from January forty two, um, they they include Jews in England, Jews in Switzerland, Ireland, uh, so that this was to make Europe at least Europe, and then mm. they go off Europe to Libya and other Rhodes, Malta, um, to make. Europe, Judenrind, from one end to the other. And so that most genocides, you know, the, the, the Turks who were horrific, just this outrageous in their treatment of the Armenians, but they were interested in the Armenians in a certain area, not an Armenian living in Berlin or mm. Paris or something like that. And it was state-sponsored. It wasn't a group coming up from behind or the side or whatever. The entire state apparatus was involved. Yeah, it was systematic and industrialized. That's right. Industri- it was industrial 
industrialized killing. Mm. How, to use every aspect, I was just in uh, Auschwitz this summer. It was I've been there many times on research and et cetera. Um, and I was showing someone walking with someone through the museum, and I said, "Look, blankets made out of hair. Let's save the spectacles. Let's repurpose the uh, suitcases." It was it was a major. In addition to being a major killing operation, it was a major industrial operation designed to make uh, the SS and, by extension, the Nazi regime in Germany rich. Mm, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so many, even in the Einsatzgruppen, you know, would take the possessions of the Jewish people. Oh, absolutely. You mm. have their pictures. In fact, in Paris, uh, there's some famous pictures of warehouses where you see SS officers walking through the warehouses and their dishes and this furniture. This is all stuff that's been uh, confiscated from Jews. And they were invited to go in and maybe pay for it, buy it at bargain prices. But this was, uh, there was a, there was a deep economic element, but also a strong ideological element of hatred of a hatred of Jews the the demonization of Jews in a way that um, was unheard of and again contrasting not saying one uh, you know my pain it's not comparative pain but in the Armenian genocide again something which should be talked about much more mm-hmm. um, if a Turkish family took a, a Muslim baby I'm, I'm sorry, but a Turkish Muslim took a Christian baby, a Christian Armenian Christian baby. They would raise it as a Muslim, and that was fine. Not in the Holocaust, because a drop of Jewish blood, as if there is such a thing, mm. um, meant that that person had to be destroyed. Yeah, exactly. That's a great point. Um, Christopher Browning, who you mentioned there, um, when he came in, was talking about anti-Semitism historically and suggested that it was a feature of Europe essentially from medieval times and was deeply ingrained Absolutely. in the whole of Europe. It was... Uh it starts in ancient times with, uh, based on the New Testament story of the crucifixion of Jesus, that didn't have to happen from there. But by the Middle Ages, even the early Middle Ages, as Christianity is gaining a foothold in Europe, it, one of the things it needs is an enemy. One of the things it needs to do is to differentiate itself from its mother religion. The uh, ideology was supersessionism. We have, uh, we as Christians have superseded Judaism. So the Jew is, is not only refusing to see the light, of Christianity, but is blind and is 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 eaten and wants to hurt Christians. Mm. So the Jew becomes not just someone to be disliked, as might be the case with a ra- you know a, in a racist, but the Jew becomes the devil. The Jew becomes the demon. The Jew becomes the ultimate threat. And that is one of the things that continues. And in the book, in, in anti-Semitism here and now, I show that that it migrates way out of the church. It migrates to Karl Marx, who hated all and uh, despised all religion. It migrates to Nazis. It migrates to pseudoscience. So it has legs, and it, it remains with us. Exactly. Strongly. Yeah, it doesn't go away. It doesn't go away. I don't, in fact, uh, while I think there are certain things we can uh, do, uh, do to address uh, prejudice in general, anti-Semitism, in particular, I don't think we can cure it. I think it's there. It's, I, desc- I compare it to a herpes virus that lies dormant in your body and is exposed at times of stress or when there is a hospitable atmosphere. You have an infection, you have something, and it can find a place to embed itself. Mm. Um, and I think that's what we see in anti-Semitism. That, again, I'm not saying, and I argue this in the book, and uh, you know, uh, that there's nothing we can do. 
And I, I wrote the book. I've been very gratified by the reception it's received in general. And since I've been here in Australia, I was in the Antidote Festival at the Opera House, Sydney Opera House last week. And the response and the interest from a broad range of people, it's not just I'm speaking to the victims of the Jewish community. It's way beyond that. Um, and that people under, are beginning to take it seriously. You know, and the Jew presents, again, as I, as I argue in the book, and you know from, from having read the book that it's a mm. s- series of letters. I wrote it to be accessible. I want the person who is saying, what is this? Where did it come from? What's going on here? To be able to pick it up and read it and, and, and find answers. Um, but it's, it's a threat to democracy, the point of, of anti-Semitism is not just that it harms the Jew and makes I – mean, last night I heard stories of a, a, a 16-year-old girl in Melbourne who goes to a regular school, friendly with her friends, and she was sitting having lunch, and uh, some of the guys walked by and he threw a $5 bill down. And she said, what's and – oh, on the floor. And someone said, aren't you going to pick that up? And she said, no, it's not my money. He dropped it. Um, and they said, well, you're a Jew. You know, implying Jews are are always interested in money, they're cheap, Uh, that a a young boy was tormented by friends on the bus, Uh, that that there are Jews who are uncomfortable about openly showing their Jewish identity. Now, there are groups that suffer much more direct in that way, but it's not a good thing for society if a group within that society feels they have to go underground. They have to mm. be hidden. They have to be – I mean, we've seen that with the LGBTQ revolution of the past many years. Um, it's not healthy for the group, but it's not healthy for the society either. And I think in terms of anti-Semitism, there's another element. Anti-Semitism is a conspiracy theory. You, the, the racist punches down and says if those – quotes around those people come into quotes around our schools. They'll bring the schools down. They'll bring down. There goes the neighborhood, the value, et cetera. The anti-Semite, who's one and the same with the racist in in, in 99.999% of the cases, looks at the Jew and says, that Jew is is causing us danger. That Jew is, is, is more powerful, more cunning. They control things. So it's not just that you dislike them, but they become the ultimate evil. And they have to be stopped. So the race, the anti-Semite punches up, the racist punches down. Mm. And I'm glad you brought up that conspiratorial element because it is quite a unique feature around anti-Semitism. And this um, idea or the stereotypes that exist currently around the Jews, in inverted commas, which are around power, money, right. um, controlling the financial system, um, you know, having, as you say, that like overly strong focus or um, identity of being a business person who's interested in making deals and perhaps um, not being honest. Not being quite honest, not being right, exactly. Those are the traditional anti-Semitic stereotypes and they're very much there. Uh, And that conspiracy element, you know, they control, they... Now, there are Jews who are rich and there are Jews who are powerful and there are Jews who are not rich and not powerful, um, just like any other group. But the minute about you talk about the Jews, uh, then you're 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 on that slope in, in that anti-Semitic slope, as is with the case with racism and other isms. Mm. Absolutely, but the conspiracy theory um, is particularly dangerous to any democracy because if I believe that there is a group, <coughs> excuse me, in this case Jews, who control 
the judges, control the banks, control the media, whatever it might be. I lose faith in the democratic institutions in my society. Once you begin to lose faith in those democratic institutions, democracy is at risk. And we see those attacks. We see them on on the left. We see more uh, of a refusal to take it seriously because the Jew doesn't present as other victims of prejudice. The Jew presents differently than an African-American, a a black person, a Hispanic, a a person of color, um, a Muslim um and but but you have to take it seriously and it's what i'm sad about as a person who sees herself certainly as center left and and on that side is that i see so many people on the progressive left not everyone but some certainly it's exemplified by the place people around the leader of the british labor party jeremy corbyn who refuse to take it seriously because they look at jews and they say oh you're not victims their default position is not to take it seriously if any other group minority group either ethnic religious sexual preference whatever it might be came to them and said we are the victims of prejudice Mm. their default position wouldn't be to dismiss their default position is we don't take it seriously you're making it up you're you're doing it for your own advancement and how could me a committed liberal be a purveyor of prejudice but it is happening Indeed. And in this book, I think you provide something that's particularly helpful, which is around identifying anti-Semitism mm-hmm. and um, I guess the varying types right. of anti-Semites and, anti-Semites and anti-Semitic behaviour and right. attitudes. We're all familiar with the extremists. The person mm. in Pittsburgh, we don't have to shot at the synagogue or at San Diego or other or in Europe in so many places. We don't have to be convinced that they're anti-Semites. But you have the dinner party anti-Semite, the person who says, oh, uh, you know, we just hired a new associate in our law firm or a new person. Um, He's a Jew, but he's very honest. Or what happened to me? I have not had that much personal experience. Of course, I had the six years of the Irving lawsuit, which I lived with anti-Semitic attacks and anti-Semitic rhetoric day day in, day out. But... um, the one of the things that happened to me is uh, when I was uh, I had my first uh, teaching position at the University of Washington in Seattle, and uh, towards the end, it went very well. Classes were crowded; the whole range of students taking my classes, etc. Towards the end of my year, a colleague took me out for a coffee, and he said, "Deborah, last year when this job was being decided upon and defined, and uh, and we were doing the search and, and 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 interviewing candidates, I was on leave, and it was before you know you kept up with everything via email." He said, so when I came back, I discovered we had hired someone in modern Jewish history. It was the first time someone in the university had Jewish in their title. And he said, and then I heard you were a woman, a New Yorker. And he paused and said, and a Jew. I was really worried. And I'm sitting there drinking my coffee thinking, where is this conversation going? <laughs> then he said, but Deborah, you're the best thing to happen to this department. And I was a young grad. I was young, you know. I had just finished graduate school. Mm. I was to my enduring shame. I didn't say anything. But today, I would have said, "Well, thank you for what you think is a compliment, but that is one of the most anti-Semitic." You know, I like you because you know, despite all those things, it's like saying some of my best friends are Jews, some of my yeah. best friends are gays. When people start boasting, some of my best friends are white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. Then I'll say, <laughs> "That's you know, they never boast about that, but about Jews, about gays, about blacks." 
there's something I'm 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 I know the good ones or look at me I'm so terrific I'm friends with you know with them yeah uh, there's it's it's what a, a American journalist has said uh, a philo semite someone who boasts about that is an anti semite who likes Jews <laughs> <laughs> you say that you're an equal opportunity critic which is great and you highlight in this book the fact that there's anti semitic views on the left and the right and they present themselves in different ways but there's also people who in enable anti-Semitism to become accepted or at least unchallenged in public debates, various issues arising. Um, And a lot of uh, perhaps people on the left or progressive politics might think about the state of Israel and often um, can head into a slippery slope of anti-Semitism or at least enabling anti-Semitism when they engage on the issue of Israel and Palestine. Israel, and we could spend the whole hour, which I know we don't have, Mm. uh, talking about that topic. So let me me sort of lay out certain things. Criticism of Israeli policies is not anti-Semitism, just like criticism of Australian policy is not anti-Australianism or whatever. It's when a person has a myopic view that only one side is responsible for everything that happened. Uh, If only the Israelis would do X, Y, Z. Or this is the only human rights problem in the world. I'm not saying you have to be concerned about all human rights problems to earn Mm. your bona fides. But when you have this myopic view, um, when you say, oh, Israel was, as one person uh, who's very anti-Israel said to me recently, Israel was founded in sin, so it doesn't have a right to exist. So what do you mean? Well, Arabs were chased out. Now, there were some Arabs who were chased that, but many left of their own volition expecting they would come back. And he said, so it doesn't have a right to exist. I said, let's talk about other countries that have sins in their founding history. We'll start with the United States and slavery and Native Americans. We'll go to Canada and talk about First Nation. Then we'll go across the sea to Australia and the treatment of your indigenous people, the the aborigines who were here, Mm. to New Zealand, to Maoris. it's 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 that singular focus that you've got to wonder what is going on here and ignoring uh, wrongs that exist. You know the the um, outline of LGBTQ activities in the, in the Palestinian Authority areas or the overt anti-Semitism in some of their textbooks. It doesn't make the other right. I'm not saying, oh, because they do it, two wrongs make it okay. Mm. I'm not saying that at all. But what I'm saying is the people who care about those things should be caring about them on both sides. You can't fight one ism without fighting another ism. You know, you can't say, I'm only going to fight that ism or I'm going to engage in a prejudicial attitude to try to achieve a human rights objective. Something's wrong. Mm. Um, there's so much more nuance to this than I think is often captured when people get emotive That's and right. invested in these political debates. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Nuance, nuance and listening and understanding the history. And I tried to do that in the book uh, to really make it accessible to people. I wasn't writing for my colleagues. I mm. wasn't writing for my specialists. So it is an academic book, 30 pages of footnotes, but they're in the back. Yeah. You can read the book <laughs> without ever looking at a footnote. You can. And it's called Anti-Semitism Here and now, and you are delivering a narration tonight, the John Button oration at Correct. State Library of Victoria. So That's very, can... It's very exciting. It's yeah. very exciting. I've, I've had an unbelievable trip. I'm leaving tomorrow, but I hope to be back soon. So That would be great. Thank it's a you. whirlwind trip, isn't it? Yeah. Um, that's on tonight at 6.30 if anyone's interested, and I'll give you more details after this. Uh, thank you so much, Deborah, for thank making you, Amy. the trip Thank you, Thank you for having me. It's been a great pleasure. And, and it... mine. Thanks. Uh, I've been speaking with Professor Deborah Lipstadt, who is the author of a new book, Anti-Semitism, Here and Now, and as I said, is delivering the John Button oration tonight. 
This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. I'm really excited that I have a wonderful guest who's joining me in the studio, Dr. Julie Cotter, who is a freelance writer and an art historian. And um, she's written a new book called Portraits Destroyed, Power, Ego and History's Vandals. Uh, But this isn't her first book. And in fact, one of her first book was very popular and um, did quite well, I believe, in its critical reception um, around Australian Impressionism and Tom Roberts, the um, quite well-known Australian artist. So it's great to uh, have Julie with me in the studio and welcome there, Julie. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. It's wonderful to chat with you. Thank you. Yeah. And I mean, in terms of um, book publishing and aesthetics and the feel of a book, your book definitely does do quite well. It's not only is it hardback, but it's just really beautifully presented. And, um, yeah, I love the cover, which is, uh, to describe it, it's kind of like half of the a Churchill portrait with this massive kind of white paint streaked across um, the upper part of his torso and face. Yes, uh, Thames and Hudson did a beautiful job yeah. on presenting the book. It's a lot of work that goes into the presentation and obviously the writing. But it's it's wonderful and it's amazing how many people have said how great it is to have a hardback book. It's lovely to feel and to touch and the cover's really soft and, you know, the paper mm. they've used. And um, I'm really proud of it. It's fantastic. So I'm yeah. very happy. No wonder. <laughs> it's great. And it's a really interesting topic to... I mean, talk about, because it does come across or come up, it comes up certainly in art scholarship and when, you know, I've done um, courses around conservation and um, political elements of art, there are so many moments in time where art has been destroyed and defaced often for a political reason. Um, But also, you know, there are sometimes examples I'm thinking of, like I think it was the Night Watch, which was such a shocking um, instance where, you know, that massively beautiful and, you know, important painting was essentially like slashed um, and is now being restored and there's like a live webcam that people can watch seeing it restored. I mean, it's like a, a really important, I guess, element of art scholarship that perhaps hasn't been looked at in the way that you have, which is to focus on portraiture and and like the reasons behind the destruction of portraits and I guess the special power that they hold. Um, so first up, maybe we can talk about what the area of art portraiture means to you and why you were so interested particularly in art portraiture as a way into these issues of history and politics and personal ego and expressions of identity. Well, you're right about the Night Watch. It really shows how much we treasure objects and pictures. They're part of our history. They speak to us about a moment and a time in history and and we treasure those objects. 
it's also interesting, just as an aside, how people love to watch a work being restored, that feel that you're behind the scenes and, and it's captivating and it's magical when it comes back to life. So I began to think about when portraits were destroyed, exactly why people attack portraits. And and it's the often it's because they treasure the object. And this is this is the person's the object standing in for the person. And they can't attack the person, so they attack the object. And so in studying art history, there were so many instances of portraits being destroyed, whether it's the suffragettes slashing the portraits of Henry James and Thomas Carlyle or whether it's when it's a dictator deposed to take the portrait out into the street and attack the portrait is the best way to indicate your hatred of that dictator. People destroy portraits because they might be of ex-lovers. People destroy portraits because they look at them and it's not quite how they see themselves, Mm. so they destroy the portrait. So, yeah, it has the portrait has an integrity, and to destroy the portrait says a great deal about intentions of the person destroying. Mm. And part of the book captures this idea that in the artist's process, there's often a lot of revision and change and interpretation. And it is one of those perhaps really personal um, things to sit down and have your portrait done, um, but also the way that it's expressed visually in the style of the artist, you know, whether it's hyper-realistic or is it, you know, quite um, impressionistic and, you know, that also um, does say a lot about the subject, the way the style and the um, the way that the paint is applied is just as important as, I guess, the overall depiction and scenery and, you know, what the person looks like, what their facial expression is. Yes, there's there's a great debate that's gone on forever in the study of portraiture is that when an artist paints your portrait, are they painting themselves or are they painting you? Mm. And so, of course, there is something of the artist in the portrait because it's their response to you. And um, and I talk about this intimacy of interaction. You engage with someone when you paint their portrait and it's what that person gives you that you work with when you place that on the on the picture plane mm. if it's if it's a two D work. And so it's through that interaction that you're able to garner something about that person. So when you look at portraits that you might consider are unsuccessful. I find that that's often the case when someone has painted someone from a photograph or they haven't really sat down with that person and we find that we don't feel they've grasped that person and their character and understand them. Of course, when it's an official portrait, sometimes the subject doesn't have a say Mm. in who comes along to paint them and their style might in fact not, might not be a style that they engage with. And it's interesting when you talk about um, what a successful portrait is, um, it's a summation of a life and an exclamation mark upon all that has been achieved and is yet to be discovered. And you were talking about Winston Churchill, um, obviously many people would know him as 
a British Prime Minister who was quite highly regarded in his time, although many people have debated his reputation. Um, Mm -hmm. But one of the interesting elements is his portrait and the process for that um, being done. And it's been depicted in popular culture even um, in The Crown, the Netflix series. And I found that quite quite riveting the way that they um, depicted the relationship between artist and sitter. And you highlight in this book the fact that Winston Churchill himself loved to paint and that that then also adds complexities and a different kind of power dynamic to the situation. Yes, So that was a really interesting commission. It was the Joint Houses of Parliament that commissioned the portrait and it was to honour Winston Churchill's 80th birthday and it was to be presented to him in that sort of spirit. And so, of course, Winston Churchill, who was still Prime Minister at that time in 1954, uh, uh, loved the idea. Mm. that this would be a summation of his life. And, of course, Winston Churchill had a a great idea of who he was and his image. And many people know Winston Churchill from the Yusuf Karsh photograph taken of him in 1941, where he's standing there with his hands sort of on on his hip and glaring at the camera. And that's how Winston Churchill saw himself, the bulldog, the person who could win the war for everybody. Mm. And so this is the kind of image that Winston carried of himself. So when he came to sit down with Graham Sutherland, who was the artist chosen to paint Winston Churchill's portrait. Now, Graham Sutherland was an important British artist. He'd been a war artist. Uh, he'd exhibited at the Venice Biennale. But he wasn't really known for his portraits. He had done some interesting portraits of people like Somerset Maugham and a few people like that. But he wasn't really well known. But Graham Sutherland went to Chartwell Manor, Winston Churchill's country home, and they sat down together to do the portrait. And it was at Chartwell Manor where Winston Churchill painted. And, of course, he had, you know, all of the paraphernalia of mm. of an artist. He did a lot of landscape art, mostly, a couple of portraits. And so when Graham Sutherland arrived with a few pencils and a bit of a notepad, you know, he said to him, I'm sorry, sir, but you don't have the right kit. You know, he expected Graham to turn up with the canvas and sit there and paint him. And, of course, so Graham made a few visits, got to know him over this period of time, refused to allow him to pose with his cigar in his mouth, which was his usual accoutrement, if you like. Mm. And um, and so they engaged in this portrait. And he had Winston in his Henry Poole suit sitting in a, in a kind of club chair And so the portrait eventually kind of looks as though he's a little bit slumped. He's not standing, he's sitting, and and Churchill believes that he did not look as powerful as he should have looked. That after 80 years of fighting for Britain, fighting in, uh, well, he certainly fought in the First World War and commanded the troops, if you like, in the Second World War as Prime Minister of England, he felt that he deserved a much better tribute than what was given by Graham Sutherland. So when he saw the final product, he was outraged and, and you know, didn't want it to be presented at Westminster Hall. 
he he objected to it and of course he he then sort of at the presentation stood up and announced to everybody this is a fine example of modern art and there were of course sort of sniggers and laughs and things like that mm. and then eventually um it was destroyed through um being taken to the Churchill's gardener's property and burnt and it's interesting that um, a lot of people would say it wasn't his portrait to destroy it, mm. in terms of the ownership of the portrait and the purpose of the portrait. Well, that was disputed. Mm. And it's um, The Churchill family remonstrated that they had the right, that it was a gift to Winston Churchill and that they had the right to do what they pleased with it. Uh, there was... The dispute was that the portrait was a gift to Churchill, but it was to hang in the Houses of Parliament in perpetuity, and this was the portrait that would honour him. So given that Churchill hated the portrait, you can imagine that he did not want this to yeah. be the image of Churchill as the lifelong image and into into sort of contemporary times. So um, they destroyed it and believed they had the right. <laughs> <laughs> and was it? It was his wife who, and her son, uh, uh, her guard. So Lady Churchill, yep. Clementine Churchill, she um, didn't want it to be that Churchill was remembered this way, and so she said to her secretary, Gardner, um, "Please take this portrait away and mm. do with it as you will." Um, there's a few conflicting stories about how it happened, but her secretary, a tape recently came to light from her secretary that gives that version of the story. And um, Mary Soames, the Churchill Churchill's daughter, gives a slightly different version. But um, Lady Churchill was quite sort of emphatic about ensuring that her husband's image was preserved and destroyed other portraits that she wasn't mm. so keen on. So... Um, this, you know, she wanted to make sure that her husband's image into the future was preserved as strong, forthright, intelligent, not the portrait that resulted from Graham Sutherland, which, which Churchill felt made him look a, a little bit vague, not the kind of man that he saw himself as. Mm. And towards the end of his life, I mean, he definitely, you know, his health was ailing and there were a number of things that perhaps he didn't want other people to realise about his robustness. Yes. Well, he had a stroke um, earlier on when he was Prime Minister the second time and that was hidden. And there's mm. a great film about that as well. Um, and so he – and look, he was extraordinary – you know, like we now have computers to write books and we can change words around and look things up. He would dictate to his secretary. She would type it out and come back to him and he'd write histories of wars and people, the Duke of Marlborough, his grandfather. Um, and and he, he was the most extraordinarily intelligent man. Mm. And... Um, and you know, also a very he felt a very physically strong man, and he did not want to be remembered in this way, yeah, it's understandable, I guess, when you think about the personality of Churchill and his place in history, particularly as being a wartime prime minister mm. I agree, I agree yeah. I can to I'm totally on his side mm. from the perspective of preserving his image. 
I'm not sure that I'm on his side about destroying such a yeah. wonderful... I think it's quite a wonderful portrait. I think it says a great deal about him. Mm. You know, that that everybody is... He is not that perennial strong man. He had vulnerabilities, which Graham Sutherland found. And through chatting with him, they'd walk around the garden. They went and looked at Churchill's studio. They talked about art and painting throughout the course of those meetings. And Sutherland has found the sensitivity of Churchill. He he suggests that this man had vulnerabilities, that he wasn't always right, and that's something that Churchill admitted. Um, there were... There were problems at various times with his leadership, with his directions, and and these were aspects that Sutherland has tried to capture, that this man was not invincible. And there were plenty of images to show him as invincible. Mm. And Sutherland wanted to say, this is another story about Churchill. We've got to gaze on Churchill in this quite different way. Yeah, uh, probably a Churchill very few people would potentially have got to know exactly probably his fa- i would suggest his family would have looked at that portrait and thought yes we recognize you mm. um you know you're the grandfather you're the father you're the man who had you know bouts of of depression you're the man that we actually know in this portrait and um and so it's it's a tragedy that it was destroyed. I mm. think that we would look on that portrait now and think of it as one of the great portraits. And it's interesting that, you know, art has that rare quality often of, you know, it's being this one object, you know, you can't duplicate a painting. You can take photos of it and you can, you know, like, I guess, look at it and do printouts of it. But that said, there are people who have appropriated images, iconic images of portraits like Chairman Mao, Mao Zedong from um, China, communist China. And I'm thinking of Andy Warhol and his use of screen printing and other methods in order to um, duplicate and I guess change in a substantive way portraits or pre-existing iconography of really important people, including Marilyn Monroe as well, of course. Um, But you highlight uh, this idea of Mao, Chairman Mao, and um, Warhol's depiction of him. And it did uh, remind me of the NGV exhibition we had maybe a couple of years back with Ai Weiwei, and they did um, certainly focus a significant kind of portion of a wall to varying versions of the Chairman Mao portrait. Um, Perhaps you could share with us some of those slightly more modern 20th century portraits that aren't the traditional, you know, sit down with the subject and, um, you know, hand-to-hand paint onto canvas. Well, the Warhol portrait of Mao, uh, he took from the image in the little red book. And it's the typical portrait of Mao that you see at Tiananmen Square. And um, that portrait is extraordinarily big and it overwhelms. It's um, quite interestingly, it's a new portrait that's painted every year. 
it gets dusty and deteriorates with the environment. Mm. So every year the official artist paints a new portrait of Mao and the old one is painted over in white and it's put in a secure basement. So there are adding up all of these white painted portraits of Mao. But that's sorry, that's getting off your topic there. Um, and so, yeah, so Warhol took the image. He considered Mao to be the most famous person in the world. And so he took the image, appropriated that image and did as he wished with it. He painted over it, he glossed it up, he he gave it a very fashionable exterior. Uh, the exhibition at the NGV is one of the very few times, I argue, that there has been a, a political lens on those Warhol portraits. They're usually put up for sale in auction houses and discussed as though they have no deeper meaning, that deaths from the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution are not discussed in the context of those portraits. And so what I suggest is that if I was a descendant of someone who had died at the hands of that regime at that time as a result of the Cultural Revolution or the Great Leap Forward, I would feel particularly disturbed by that portrait. I would feel particularly disturbed by that imaging as though it had no meaning. So Ai Weiwei gave us in that exhibition quite a political perspective on growing up in China and the portrait of Mao and the meaning that it had. And so he suggests to us, of course, that this he is giving us this perspective of Mao as having been responsible for these deaths, for millions and millions and millions of deaths. And that we need to think about this. We need to think about these portraits within that historical context and not just think of them within Andy Warhol's perspective of a superficial artistic context. And so, yes, so he certainly didn't sit down with Mao. He did the works in 1972 was the first time he exhibited one of his Mao portraits and I don't think he visited China until the early 80s. So, And it was his one and only visit to China. Um, so Warhol didn't sit down with these subjects. And they're taking these subjects from popular culture, which of course was his art practice. And I don't deny that that was his art practice. And, mm. and Warhol has really kind – he really reimagined art practice during the early 70s and certainly late 60s. And there are some magnificent works that I've loved of Warhol. The the Mao portraits, I think, are really quite different within this context of suffering and uh, splashing the portrait without that context of meaning. And so I introduce a number of writers who... Um, who, Chinese writers who came to places like America and indicated their their uh, concern that the Warhol portraits of Mao are exhibited without that context. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I mean, the way when you look at it, or obviously there's so many versions of it, but when you're looking at it, it kind of feels like it's given this um, 
oh, extra oomph or contemporary punch with the different colours and the way that it's been altered and the scale of it as well being so large and also duplicated because often they would be displayed next to each other in the different you know stages of printing and colour changes. Um, One of the quotes that you have here from contemporary Chinese artist Zhang Hongtu um, was interesting to me because He says, the first time I cut Mao's portrait with a knife and put it back together to make a new Mao image, I felt guilty and sinful, which I think captures some of the real complexity of um, a Chinese person's relationship to the image of Mao, particularly those very, very well-known, highly disseminated images that were, as you say, it's in the Little Red Book and there are so many ways that his um, image was present across China during the, you know, his reign essentially and after. Mm. Well, the um, the portrait of Mao was often placed on the mantelpiece of the family home and uh, in my book I talk about some people talking about how there used to be an altar but that went and the Mao portrait was placed there. So Mao's portrait was the image people saw the moment they arrived home. And I can, you know, you can imagine this artist feeling sinful about cutting up the portrait, that that he would he has done something wrong, that he will be um, persecuted for doing this. I give the example of the Hunan rebels who went to Tiananmen Square during the uprising and they threw paint in eggshells at the portrait of Mao. And as a result of that, they received between about 12 and 17 years in prison Mm. for throwing the paint at Mao's portrait. This was considered a sin you know this was an atrocity it was a statement that you were against everything that china held dear and and but what's also conflicting is that the the tiananmen square uprising was about wanting democracy wanting a new china and yet after tiananmen the increase in people owning portraits of Mao, it went from something like, I haven't done this research, I used someone else's research, like 200,000 images were sold a year to something like 50 million in a couple of years. Mm. And whether that was people thinking, okay, we need to return to what we connect to. And the portrait of Mao held something for them that was safe and secure. And... So, so yes, so that sort of attacking the portrait um, through those means is really quite interesting. Mm. And in terms of some examples of perhaps where there haven't been imagery or portraits, um, thinking of Mary, Queen of Scots, I mean, that's such a glaring <laughs> omission. Oh, and I'm really – I was interested in that, the fact that you were saying even her son didn't have – a picture, an image, a portrait of her and the power of portraits 
so long ago really being the only way apart from maybe memento mori's of you know holding on to loved ones who've passed away or are far away or you know and obviously mary queen of scots is very important for a range of reasons um not just to her own son but i mean how have portraits been essential as a historical record but also as something that people utilize perhaps in their daily life you know in the renaissance or I'm thinking of yeah those little kind of um, tiny little miniature portraits and things that used to be painted of family members Mm. so in the instance of Mary Queen of Scots Mm. um, you know there were um, possibly miniatures that James VI had But I argue that if he had had a really good portrait of Mary, Queen of Scots, his mother, uh, would he have appealed for her to be rescued from the gallows? And we all know that when we look at a portrait of loved ones, we feel a connection to them. Our eyes meet. Mm -hmm. We feel that that understanding and knowledge of each other. And um, and so I th- I think that you know I propose this as as maybe he might have come down from Scotland and said to Elizabeth the first, please do not kill my mother, mm. but he didn't, and that was for obviously political reasons. He became James the first of England and um, Scotland, and so uh, and you know Elizabeth the first was incredible at at ensuring that her image was highly protected. So if there was a painting done of her than which she didn't look young, you know, what was called the mask of youth, she had it destroyed. So there were a lot of bonfires of Elizabeth I's image. What is interesting is that when she died and James became James I, um, that people did bring out these hidden portraits that must have been copies of copies of Mary, Queen of Scots. And so people certainly harboured portraits of queens, uh, you know, the great stories of Henry VIII and his six wives, you know, each sort of successive yeah. wife. And and conservators now are finding that underneath, you know, maybe the later wife um, Catherine Parr is a portrait of Catherine of Aragon and they were all quite similar in look so it was quite easy to just paint over you know rather than get a whole new canvas and a whole new image let's just adjust the the details a little bit and um, call it the new queen so uh, these portraits are incredibly important and uh, talking about Europe uh, the Medici family they would produce what were called um, matrimon- uh, uh, matriarchal portraits, sorry, where the mother of the heir was painted with the heir. And this was mm. quite a common practice. And these portraits were copied and distributed to the Medici family. And so you, you have this, this statement on behalf of the family that this is the heir, don't mess with this lineage and... You know, this is our, how the lineage is going to survive. Of course, you know, as we know, the Medicis were pretty good at knocking each other off. And so those portraits would be destroyed um, <laughs> when someone was deposed as the heir. Mm. And so that was certainly a practice that they enjoyed. Yes. They were such important patrons of the arts in Italy. 
Yes, yeah. yes, they were. And so they hired the best portrait painters. Mm. I mean, some of the portraits of the Medicis are extraordinary. Um, and uh, Bianca Capello is one that I place by Alessandro Allori in the book. And the portrait that was destroyed of her was what was called a triple portrait. So it's one of those typically Medici complex stories. So I can <laughs> go totally into it. But she was painted with the heir and her illegitimate son so that she could shore up her illegitimate son's future thinking that the heir would still be the heir, but of course the heir died. And so then she tried to make a case for the fact that her illegitimate son should be the heir. Mm. Um, There were obviously cousins who disagreed with all of that. And so that triple portrait has never been found. It's only known about. Obviously, if you were a Medici wanting to say that this illegitimate heir is not the heir, you'd Mm. get rid of the portrait. So... So that kind of um, destruction and all the copies, uh, researchers have looked for the copies, there are no copies. So so this was a very thorough obliteration of mm. that heirs, that illegitimate heirs right to the Medici fortune and lineage. Yes. Oh, gosh, it's really interesting that, you know, the personal dramas that are behind the portraits as well as the historical, you know, relevance that it has. Um, I was really interested in this idea of artists painting artists and Degas and Manet and, I mean, to be honest, yeah, that would be quite confronting for an artist perhaps, I don't know. But I know you're interested in Australian Impressionism, but there's also, you know, this movement um, of Impressionism from like the late 19th century, early 20th in Europe that's so important and Manet even painting, you know, very important works. I'm thinking of Olympia who um, is, I guess, an unidentifiable um, woman of the night um, who, you know, was such a, a pivotal moment really in modernist painting. Um, But what is your fascination, I guess, with Impressionism and Australian Impressionism as well and the reason why you you got so interested in that element of art theory and art history? Well, I think it's all Lee Asprey's fault, who was my lecturer at Monash University. Mm. And he had written about the Heidelberg School, as it uh, is called by some people, and... um, And I became interested in that. And then I'd done my master's on portraiture and he suggested that perhaps I look at an angle of portraiture of the Australian Impressionists. And he said, look, Tom Roberts has painted an extraordinary number of portraits and they haven't really been studied. And I didn't really know a great deal about Tom Roberts' portraits. I mean, we all know Sharing the Rams and a lot of his um, images of Australian landscape And I started to look at them and Mm. almost a third of his output is portraiture. And his portraits are very much what I was talking about at the beginning of the interview about this interaction. Tom Roberts sat down with his portrait subject or he knew the subject. He was really interested in character. A lot of his portraits he wasn't paid for. They were people who interested him the face, he loved faces, you know. Mm. He he really kind of got to the face and and sought the 
the inner person through that phase and you see it through the the changing kind of kaleidoscope of his portraiture. He was a beautiful painter, a really beautiful, clearly I like him. (laughs) (laughs) You'd Um, have to if you did a PhD on his work, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah. And, and yes, and it just sort of gradually as I was doing the PhD, finding more and more of these portraits and looking at them up close and the way he applied the paint in that really fresh, engaging way was a great subject Mm. it was a great subject to do and and I also felt that it said a great deal about Australia and um who Australians are you know the the diversity of um people that he painted painted a lot of women who worked um whether they were actors or singers or teachers or headmistresses these were women he socialized with and and so I also found that really quite interesting. This artist who had been considered the imaging of Australian masculinity had actually painted a, a considerable body of work of Australian women. And so we see in his portraiture Australian women emerge as working as... Uh, fighting for various causes, especially at the turn of the century. And Roberts embraced those causes and painted their portrait. Mm. There's so much more we could talk about, um, but we won't be able to. That said, people can look more into this and read your first book, which is around Australian Impressionism and Tom Roberts, but also this one, which is called Portraits Destroyed, Power, Ego and History's Vandals. Um, Julie, it's been fascinating to talk with you and thanks for, I guess, talking about portraits in such a different way that I think really illuminates the relevance of art to us now, but also from the past and I guess the role that it played, an important role really in um, shaping people and reflecting them and and I guess changing people's perceptions perhaps of major figures, important figures in time. Yeah, I mean, it's um, it's a great way to get into history. Mm. You know, you look at the portrait and you start to investigate it and you learn a great deal about history through that portraiture. But portraiture it still has its contemporary relevance. I mm. mean, the Archibald Prize is one of our most popular art exhibitions competitions. So portraiture still can work as an avenue into thinking about a person, thinking about their contribution and thinking about our contemporary history. Mm. Thank you, Julie. It's been fantastic to chat with you. Thank you for having me. It's been great. Thank you. I've been speaking with the wonderful Dr. Julie Cotter, who has written uh, a new book, which I just mentioned. It's called Portraits Destroyed. It's out through Thames and Hudson. And Julie is a freelance writer and art historian. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.